Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Making Our Way podcast. We take a deep dive into the projects and creative process of our fellow makers. I'm Dean Duplantis, and I'm excited to join you for this episode, along with my co-host, Christy from Twisted Twine and Austin of High Caliber Craftsman. All right, hey, guys, looks like we made it another week. Good to see y'all. Hey, what's up? Hey, hey. Not too much, man. Oh, wow, what a week. Uh, I know it's it's been taxing on all of us. Austin, what have you been working on over there? I finished there? my first mallet, and so uh, that'll be coming soon. But really, like this week, I'm focusing on, I'm, I'm building a, a new lean-to roof off of my shipping container that's going to be turned into my blacksmith shop. Um, so that's been, the majority of my week has been planning, digging holes for posts and cementing them in place. How are you digging the holes? Just a regular old pole cell digger, you know, <laughs> the, uh, is that what you call your yeah, dad or actually that, <laughs> of course. So I put him to work and I called my uncle too. So I didn't have to do a ton of holes by myself. And, uh, I took a bunch of uh, water breaks that I needed to go get a tape measure in the air condition. <laughs> uh, but don't you have a tractor? Couldn't you just use like an auger or something yeah. to dig those holes? Yeah, that's true. Like- uh, I don't actually own an auger for the, uh, for the, for the post hole digger for the tractor, but my buddy, my good buddy, Nick has one and he offered it to me, but I, I'm all, I was only doing six um, for, t- for the, t- uh, today and to start out. So I, I didn't think I really needed it. By the end of today, because we actually have like two inches of crushed concrete in the blacksmith area, by the end of doing those six holes, I wish we actually had borrowed it and used it because it would have definitely saved my shoulders a lot. (laughs) So what have you been up to, uh, Christy? Well, we've started kind of working through the ideas for for the shop build. Unfortunately, we're waiting on... um, the property line guys, you know, the uh, surveyors to tell us exactly where our property lines are. Um, because obviously we want to have it built in the right spot or we want to build it in the right spot. Um, and I had a, a little while back on one of my stories I had where originally the plan was to build the shop in the back of the yard. Um, but as we were looking at the layout, hilly, it's a, it's an incline back behind the house. So, um, as we were looking at it, we're like, why don't we just put the shop right next to the house? Um, and then it would be on the side where the garage is already. It would, you know, be closer for electricity and all of those kind of hookups. Um, so that's kind of, that's kind of what we're leaning. I think that'd be nice too, because then it saves your backyard. You can actually still have a backyard and, uh, and like you said, running the running utilities to it is going to be a lot cheaper yeah. than having to pay the power company to run some some heavy duty lines way back. It's always the worst when you're waiting on the city or the the county or, or something. Uh, we're having a plumbing problem, and I get a the ring doorbell goes off on Thursday, and, and nobody's home, and it's the city. They want to go in the backyard because something's wrong with the city sewer line, and it's like, hey man, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. A call or a note or something would be nice. Well, they come back Friday in the pouring rain and go back there. Yeah, I'm in flip-flops. They're in knee boots and we're standing in, you know, standing water trying to figure out what's going on with the sewage. But uh, yeah, it's always something. I don't know if they're done. I don't know if it's been fixed. There's just no communication. So I feel your pain on waiting on them. Yeah. And one thing, you know, speaking of sewer and water and stuff like that, one thing we have decided we, we aren't planning on putting um, 
uh, a bathroom in there or even running water because uh, we really don't see that necessity for the, you know, offset the cost um, as we're kind of, you know, analyzing the size of the shop, the layout, what benefit, you know, what perks we want as far as heating, um, some type of cooling. We're contemplating um, to have part of it be two-story because it'll kind of be an earth contact the way the hillside runs. Um, and of course, being in the Midwest, the benefit of having kind of an earth contact building is uh, tornadoes, storms, those kind of things. So we're thinking it's going to be a little bit of a dual purpose, which will also be a benefit of having it so close to the house that in case we need to use it as a, as a storm shelter, um, it'll be there. You know, it makes a good uh, storm shelter, a whole workbench of sharp tools that get to fly across the room and hit you. <laughs> well, we were thinking more along the line of the back corner is going to be a closet. So, um, so that would be where the, where the more of the storm shelter would be, would be the back closet there. <laughs> That's great. So Dean, what have you been up to? Um, I mean, I've been in the mallet world too, just like you. Um, I, I made two, um, I've learned a lot of lessons. I, I hate when people quote famous people, but I, uh, I went to school on the first one and on the second one and probably on the third and fourth one. But, um, it's definitely been fun and they come out pretty good. My wife and my sister were both like, what are you going to do with all these mallets? And I'm like, well, if I have five or six of them, I would never have to look for one. They're going to be all over the place. I did just cross 2000 followers and I thought maybe I could do a giveaway with one or something. Just make sure it's not the one that I'm going to win. <laughs> you know, and, and these rigged elections, the guy with, you know, 15,000 followers, you know, I'm sorry, 150,000 followers took a round piece of metal and made it round and is calling it a mallet. Um, yeah. And you know, it, it's, it's just rigged. It's rigged. But I was so excited, Austin, to do this Cypress and the, uh, the Snakewood one. I thought it was going to be a cool concept. I'm online shopping for alligator heads because I got a photo shoot in mind for everything. And uh, you were right. Austin reached out to me on Saturday. I started stabilizing this Cypress on Friday just because it's not really dense. I want to get some heft to it. And so I, I got some cactus juice and a vacuum pot. And on Thursday, I put the cypress in the vacuum pot and let the vacuum run Thursday, Friday. And I took it out Saturday morning, put it in resin and it sat in resin Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And I took it out last night, put it in the oven Monday night and baked it till today when I got home from work and it absorbed two ounces of resin. That's it. And Austin called on Saturday and was like, you know, I was thinking about that Cypress and they live in water. I mean, do you think it's going to, and sure enough, I looked, I was so enamored by the idea. I never really looked at the wood and there is no grain. I mean, there's no grain to suck up the resin and it was a complete failure. So luckily I had two backups. I did a sycamore one, which also is a complete failure. And uh, I did a pecan one. And I think the pecan one may work out. I just put it on the lathe before the podcast. I don't know how it's going to look. But um, fingers crossed on that one. If not, I'll be spending more money on more wood, I guess. That one actually, when I saw the, you pulling it out of the um, resin, it looked super the cool. The cypress yeah. one looked so cool. Like it had the green, I thought it was going to be, and no, none of that, all that ran off into the bottom of the tray. Now you had said that you had bought a vacuum pot for that. Um, kind of ex- elaborate on that if you could a little bit. Yeah, and I'm by no means an expert. I, I researched all this going into the mallet building. Um, I think that's one thing 
we all have in common and we do a lot of research before. I mean, I just do things sometimes, but I also do a lot of homework. And so I wanted to stabilize. And what that means is you replace the voids in the wood with a hardening agent. This, in this case, it's heat activated resin. And so you put it, you submerge your wood in the resin and you run a vacuum pot to pull all the air out. So the air is coming out of the chamber and out of the wood. And then when you release the vacuum, the air rushes back into the pot and that pushes resin into the wood grains. And then you let it soak. And that also, you know, continues that capillary action of sucking resin in. And so uh, that's in theory, how you would harden what a pressure pot does. A lot of people who do epoxy work, they use a pressure pot. And what that does is it puts so much pressure in the system that the oxygen molecules shrink so much that they're not visible anymore. Um, you could do the same thing with a vacuum. The problem is I ran the vacuum on these wood blanks for a day. Well, the resin's starting to harden in 30 minutes. So you would get to a point where the resin is so tacky that you can't pull the air out anymore. So a vacuum pot doesn't really work for that. A pressure pot would, but when what I'm trying to do, uh, a pressure pot would have gotten resin into the exterior, but not all the way through the mallet. And I was really looking to add some, some weight. It's crazy how much air was coming out of those things when you like, I would never think that that was all in there. Yeah. Well, and they were foaming so much at the beginning. I thought for sure something was happening and maybe I was pulling air out, but there was just, it didn't want to take any, uh, any air back in the one thing. And I don't know, maybe it played a part of it. Is it so humid right now? It has rained every day for a month that, but the first step was you put these in the oven and bake them at 200 for a few hours to get the moisture content down. And I bought a moisture meter but it only goes down to like five or 6%. And they say it needs to be at zero. You want no water because the water and resin don't mix. Well, you know, the moisture meter, I, it's less than five, but I don't know. And then the other thing is though, it has to cool. So you can't take a hot thing out the oven and put it in this resin because the resin starts to activate at 85 degrees. So if the piece is too hot, the resin will start to cure and not let you soak it in. So it's a delicate dance. And I put them in Ziploc bags hoping that that was enough of a vapor barrier, a freezer bag, a vapor barrier to stop it from soaking up humidity in the air. But maybe it's just so humid. Maybe I messed something up. I, I don't know. Hmm. That's great. That's crazy. That's resin starts kicking at 85. I mean, that's like in the UPS yeah. truck on the way well, to so your house. It's, it's, gonna uh, be hard. it's a neat product. I don't have any negative things to say. I mean, th these are all user errors or bad choices of wood. It even says, you know, hard wood is preferred or punky wood. This is more designed for wood that has started to rot or fall apart, but it's got some great character to it. So you're trying to solidify it. Um, but it comes in a right. gallon jug with a, the activator is in a eight ounce container. So after you get it in your house and climate control, then you activate it oh, okay. and you activate the whole gallon and it stays for a year. As long as it stays in that kind of climate, it stays for a year. Uh, he does say though, like, don't put it in glass jars because the glass can get hot and that'll activate it. And so keep it in a plastic container and um, I'm going to give it another shot. Hey, looks like the guest showed up. How's it going? Oh, Hey. Hey everybody, today we're joined with Kelsey Watson, a maker and YouTuber, and uh, thanks for joining us, man. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm really excited to be on the pod. Awesome. So uh, maybe if you can, just give us a few little you know, tidbits about what you do um, and what, uh, what kind of maker you're, what, what's your favorite projects, that kind of stuff. 
uh, what kind of maker am I is a question that I ask myself often. <laughs> um, I guess I've been a maker, calling myself a maker for about five, six years now. Um, and kind of just experimenting with anything that catches my interest. So it's, you'd say I'm like a generalist maker or like a jackass of all trades. Um, <laughs> yeah. So kind of just see, pick a project or something that gets into your, your brain, you know, and you just want to try it out. And that's, that's where I am now. And I started, like I said, five or six years ago. And then just, uh, last year I started to like kind of join the community more and start sharing. So I started my YouTube channel where I share the projects and some of those projects go back a little ways where I recorded them and I was like a little too scared to post them and put myself out there. Um, but yeah, it's been great since I did that and I've been really happy. Awesome. That's great. So all of your projects are really awesome. People should definitely go check out your YouTube. Um, but really the first thing I'd like to talk about is the aluminum, uh, the uke, the ukulele. Can you kind of, just give us a, uh, a general, and then I've got a couple questions that I'd like to talk about it. Yeah, so that was a really fun project. It actually goes back like years. If I look in like my sketchbook, like I made that sketch of it like years ago. Um, I had seen a video by a guy named uh, Tommy Huffington who did a two by four ukulele. And I thought that was like the coolest thing. And at the same time, I had seen, I think it was around the same time, uh, on make something Dave judo did a was experimenting with aluminum brazing and then something just clicked at some point you know we, who knows where these ideas come from but i was like oh a solid <laughs> aluminum ukulele that'd be awesome um but i wasn't really sure how to make it like i hadn't figured out all the ways to join it and what exactly i was going to do uh so years went by and then finally i was just like i have to make this because I, I really had this vision in my head and so i just figured out what the best option probably would be and just try it out and went from there. And uh, yeah, it kind of worked out pretty well. I think it's not like a perfect piece. If you look like closely, it has a lot of mistakes, but it's like a prototype, you know, and it's probably the heaviest ukulele in the world. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounded good at the end. So that's what, that's what counts, right? Yeah. I was actually happy with how it sounded. Um, I made a joke that it sounded a little tinny, uh, <laughs> but, and I don't know how to play and the, the intonation was like slightly off and I, you know, I'm not like a professional luthier, so I didn't, I didn't do the proper setup yet. At some point I'll go back and try to fine tune it, but yeah, it sounded pretty good. So you it said worked. you don't know how to play, but you were playing it at the end. You learned that little ditty I just for the video. made the ukulele, mis- tuned it with like the, you know, app tuner and then went on YouTube to like figure <laughs> out how to play a little bit of ukulele and then film the, the end bit. So that was like, you know, a half hour on YouTube trying to figure out how to play a couple chords. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, it's great. So uh, let's let's dive into it a little bit. And when you're shaping the body, can you kind of describe how, how you how you did it? And uh, um, would that be called like a buck mold or how would you describe that? Um, I'm not even sure what you would call that. Uh, I think I kind of just borrowed the ideas of like traditional like woodworking ukuleles, typically like steam it. And put it in like a mold um but my like the, part of the reason i went with the aluminum or how i ended up doing the project is like i'm not a fine enough woodworker to make like a ukulele with my current skills or tools but like aluminum's kind of cheating because like when you bend it it just holds its form and you can kind of you know use basic tools to shape it and like that um i just made like the plywood form of the shape and tried to wrap the aluminum around it and i thought I would just like put it in the clamps and it would just like hold its shape. It's like little test pieces. It kind of worked, 
and then it just didn't just didn't work like it, it just it just like sprung out completely um in the video you can see that but then i kind of just like i um annealed it a couple times and um just persuaded it with brute force to kind of get this shape and it's not like perfectly symmetrical but it worked pretty well i did like how you left that in the video that you know it didn't all work first you know your first try that you had some trial and error and some tribulations you had to overcome um, it added a lot of character to the the project. Yeah, that's definitely a theme. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I I try to include as much of the mistakes as I can with still having a coherent video, because um, that uh, that wouldn't be honest <laughs> if I just didn't have the mistakes. Because I'm just not I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just experimenting, and I don't want anyone to think that like you know this is just a magical process that they can't do. You know. Yeah. Me personally, I love that. So like when I was watching your video and, and those problems came up, I love that you leave them in because while you're solving it on, I'm like trying to quickly beat the clock. I'm like, right, exactly. okay, how, how, how's he going to fix this before, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and you actually did it different than what I was thinking. You actually use the, uh, well, I'm going to call it a buck mold. Cause I think, I think that's right. But that sounds so right, you yeah. use the outside pieces to kind of overspring it and let it, uh, spring back out, I guess. Yeah, um, so, and then that was a great, great idea. And that's definitely, I didn't come to that conclusion fast what, enough what before you your, solved it. What was your conclusion? I, mine was, um, malted hops and bongers and clogging my, uh, no, <laughs> just, I just didn't have one quick enough before you, before you figured it out. And I was like, Oh yeah, that's perfect. Just to give it to that, that little extra bend. So, um, and then I noticed your, 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 so the tool set you're working with is almost all exclusively woodworking tools and you're doing this aluminum guitar or uh, ukulele. What was the, what was the most difficult part um, to handle on that build with the tool set that you have? Um, definitely the joining the body was the hardest part Joining the, the, I guess you call it the soundboard um, to the sides and the back. Uh, if I had like an aluminum TIG welder and a lot of skill, that probably would have right. been pretty easy um, with a little cleanup. But I, that was like the biggest obstacle that I had no idea for like the years that I was thinking about this project, how exactly I was going to do it. Like at first I thought, oh, I could, I, I could do the brazing for the whole thing. And then the first time I tried aluminum brazing on a thin piece of metal, it's like this, just too much heat. It just warps and it would just be a, a nightmare to do that on such a thin piece of material. And then I thought, oh, maybe I can do like kerfing on the inside and epoxy. And that was what I was going to do. And then like a week or two before I started, I saw... I looked up about um, soldering aluminum and there's a certain kind of solder you can use with aluminum with a special flux. And that's what I ended up getting. It's like a very low heat solder. Um, so that was the biggest challenge, I think, with the, the tools that I have for sure was just the joining. Right. I think one thing that people, when they go to your channel, that they would really um, learn is, is just the ability to adapt. Use, use anything that you have at your hand to, to problem solve and, and get it get it done. And I think um, you'll have a massive, you know, uh, subscriber base soon enough if you keep going. Cause that's, it really lets, uh, I like to call them every, everyday man tools. You know, it, it, when, when you start getting up in, in the, the caliber of your tools, you kind of lose a lot. You leave a lot of people behind cause they're like, Oh, I don't have anything close to that. Um, and I think that that is the gem that is your YouTube channel. And, uh, so don't lose that. Yeah, I'm not gonna lose anytime soon because I don't have any <laughs> <laughs> But um in the yeah, you know, I like tools, so I'll probably will add some 
over the years with different you know processes and stuff but yeah i do like the the problem solving for sure and like other like that project would have been a lot easier with a drill press you know because i could have actually drilled straight holes and it could have been a lot easier with infinite other, other tools but you can you can make it work right like when you're when you're attaching the net i i'm not a uh, guitar person so um excuse my you know names for everything but the neck of the guitar when you were going to attach it at, to get the correct angle um what was the jig that you tried to use that's uh, i think it's a woodworking thing so i don't oh you really... yeah the headstock joint that i made yeah mm-hmm. yeah so i had first uh tried to make my own little jig to get that drill perfectly and then i'd used a craig um pocket hole jig mm-hmm. i tried to use that because it literally was the perfect angle like a 15 degrees or whatever it was and just happened to be the perfect angle and it just didn't work at all it just completely <laughs> failed because of the you know the torque involved i guess right yeah it seems like it wanted to hop around a little bit yeah it was just it was really ugly that was what? like a oh god what am i gonna do now <laughs> kind of <moment. laughs> when i saw you switch from the craig bit to a metal drill bit i was like oh he's got it now like, yeah i thought yeah. like oh this collar will fit this would be perfect no and it just skated across the aluminum yeah i would have had to like tap and drill that thing down or something i don't even know what but then i just ended up doing the easiest option was just to eyeball it and it worked pretty well yeah sometimes that's the answer just yeah. shoot from the hip just go try for to get it. complicated with these jigs it's just eyeball you know right yeah that's it uh it came out great and so when you were shaping you did the majority of the shaping of the, the neck with uh, an angle grinder. Was it an angle grinder? Yeah, angle grinder, yeah. Awesome. And then um, could you kind of describe how you attach the whole neck to the body of the ukulele? Uh, yeah, I actually decided, like traditionally, it would just be like glued, I guess, with like a, if you're a really high-end ukulele, there'd be like a dovetail in there or something. Um, but I just had a little block of lumen on the inside, like a quarter-inch block, and then tapped it with like, quarter 20 bolts through and it's just bolted on with a little bit of uh, JB weld in between. So it's solid and kind of like a coherent piece of, of the materials that was just supposed to help with like, you know, the resonance or whatever. Right. So to, and again, forgive me, but the, the brass pieces that actually lift the um, strings above oh, uh, the bridge. Uh, yeah. Uh, at the back of the, yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry, I don't know what anything's called, but the, um, what, what was your technique when you were trying to, what were you cutting those out of? It was not, it was, it wasn't a, uh, like flat stock or anything like that. Yeah. So that was, that's the bridge. Um, that was a piece of, a, it's a random cutoff piece of aluminum I had from, from the, the, you know, the proto box, which I know mm. you guys are a fan of. You get oh, the, yeah. the selection of, uh, brass cutoffs that would have cost you you know, as much as the whole box did, and you get like a couple pounds of it. So that was just like the perfect, well, first of all, I didn't have like a break to make a nice clean uh, 45. So it was easier for me to cut it out of a square piece of tube than to try to bend it like cleanly. So I just saw that piece and like, oh, it's perfect. I'll just use this. And that bridge was kind of like my own design for a bridge. It's not like a traditional, obviously it's a piece of brass, but it's not like a traditional style of bridge. It kind of just a unique thing that I came up with. I was interested when you did the fretboard, you were talking about the wood that you used instead of an ebony or, you know, an exotic endangered wood, you had some kind of um, replacement product. What was that? Uh, it's called Rich Light and it's a paper product. It's made out oh, of wow. recycled paper and it's used, I think, primarily in like designer, like countertops and like architectural design. Um, it's not, you can't, 
I've looked into like trying to get like, you know, three quarter of an inch sheet of it, but it's like impossible to get maybe from like a local, I don't know, countertop supplier or something, but yeah, it's like a composite made out of paper, but it has like a really nice like depth to it. It's not like a flat, it's not like plastic and it's not like, obviously it's not MDF. It's very dense. It's actually harder than like any of what I've worked with. Um, but yeah, I just felt like it fit with the theme. And also like, since I'm not like a talented woodworker, I don't like the idea of using a piece of endangered wood and ruining it. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah I know that feeling. Um, but as you say that, I noticed you were doing a lot of math as you were building out this fretboard because you made the whole fretboard. Mm-hmm. Would you tell us like, where'd you get those calculations from and that whole process? So you, if you're going to make an instrument, you, there's like a way of, I forget, it's going to call it the rule of 18 or something like that. There's like a mathematical equation to figure out the fret locations. I just looked up a table. <laughs> you know, borrowed from this, the, the known scale length of a soprano ukulele. And, um, but the placement's pretty precise. So I was just using the calipers to lay it out. You can get um, rulers that have it on there, I think, like jigs and stuff. I just laid it out by hand and actually s- screwed up the first one and had to redo it. So well, good thing it wasn't endangered ebony. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so you use the file to to cut the grooves and, and how did, what were the frets made out of and how'd you attach those? Uh, the frets are made of like a nickel alloy. There's like a soft metal. Um, and I just cut them out. Yeah. I used a file to mark the spots and kind of like get the right position. And then I just used like the regular saws that I have and got as close to the tank size. Cause again, you can get like a fret saw. That's like the perfect size. Um, I just had used what I had and kind of just made it work. And since that material is so hard, um, I kind of had to make them oversized when you would for wood because there's like just like a barbs on the tang that's supposed to lock in. And they, when I went to hammer it, it was just like too wide. So I had to widen them a little bit. Um, and then, yeah, so that you can just tap them in and then you trim them. And it's a whole process of um, shaping and um, crowning the frets and all that. And then you made a lot of jigs for this project. And with the frets, you had a jig with some bearings. It was like three bearings mounted up. What was that about? Uh, so yeah, the um, fretboard has a, a slight radius to it to make it more comfortable when you're doing like bar chords and stuff like that. So I'm told I don't know how to do bar chords or anything like that. But um, so there's like a, I think mine is a, a 12 inch radius, I believe. Mm-hmm. So it's a relatively slight. And so you want to pre-bend the fret wire. So when you hammer it, it doesn't pop out on the sides, basically makes it a little easier. And you cool. bend it a little bit past that radius. So when you hammer it out, it just evens out. So I saw on that same part of the build, you were, it almost looked like you were riveting. You're hammering in these aluminum, I would, I would call them rivets, but what, what exactly are those? So that was like, again, from the proto box, it was just um, aluminum dowel. And I used it as the inlay dots for where you helps you keep track of where you are on the fretboard. And uh, usually that's like, um, like a fake shell material that they use just to, um, just the marking dots. And yeah, I decided to just go with the aluminum and I just cut out little slivers of the, of the, um, dowel and super glued them in. That's awesome. Yeah. One of the final, um, things that you did is you have your logo in the hole of the body of the, and I really thought that I like, that just made it next level. It really, really upped it and made it look awesome. And then, so when you were finishing it out, I noticed you did like, almost like a scratch pattern finish or like a sand directional sanded finish, I guess maybe you'd call it. Yeah. I was um, trying to aim for like a, a brushed aluminum, I right. guess you'd call it instead of like a polished look and that kind of also hides some crimes. 
<laughs> but, you know, they say best plumbers bury their work. So, <laughs> yeah, man, that was great. I love, I loved it. Everybody should definitely go, you know, check that one out. And, uh, and then we'd also like to talk to you, um, about your, one of your other builds, Christy, you want to take it from here? Yeah, I, um, I was quite enamored with the toolbox video, which I think, um, is, is that your first YouTube video that you posted? Is that correct? Yeah, that's my first one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, kind of give us a little description of, of what that project was, if you could, please. Sure. Uh, so that was a project I did a couple of years ago now. I just posted it in December. Um, and originally I had actually, that was my, one of my first maker projects, quote unquote maker projects, you know, was actually a, which relates <laughs> to the one we just talked about was a, a cigar box guitar. Um, I had been watching like a bunch of Crimson Guitar and I just wanted to try to make an instrument. And so I made a cigar box guitar and I had originally wanted to make a case for that. And so I had gotten the material, which was um, pallets together and the hardware. And I was going to make a, a case for this guitar. And I was like, I don't use this guitar. I just made it for fun. And I don't know how to play it. And I'm not bringing it anywhere. I don't need a case for it, but I could use a toolbox. <laughs> so I kind of just shrunk down that design of a, a, a case for the guitar into like a, tool, a toolbox for like my leather tools. And so, yeah, I made it out of pallet wood and some like old hardware. Yeah. The whole old hardware, particularly I thought was really cool. Cause it was, you know, a little dinged up in yeah. a few spots and stuff. So was that, you just had that like laying around or you ran across it on, I mean, if it was Austin, I would assume you bought it on some auction. Um, but I didn't, you know, is, or, or did you just accumulate pieces and parts over time? Uh, yeah, I was, I was, I was planning the project. Um, I picked up stuff mostly off like eBay. Um, and it's all, since it was originally going to be an instrument case, it was all kind of inspired by that. So like mm -hmm. the latches are from an old fender case and the corners are off an amp, I believe. Mm -hmm. And they have a, a pretty unique look to them compared to like the corners you can get, like just the hardware store or whatever. And then the hinges are um, new old stock, like from the fifties, like art deco-y. And then the handles are like a roadie case kind of handle thing. Yeah. I appreciated how they were like super sturdy um, for, and, and it makes a lot of sense now as to what your original plan yeah, was exactly. or kind of where you, where they went with, but I know a lot of times with um, cases or, or toolboxes, you know, it's hard to find a sturdy enough handle because if you're going to put, you know, hammers and screwdrivers and the whole nine yards in there, you kind of need something that's going to be able to kind of hold it up. Um, now on the pallet wood, you really lucked out because it was oak, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, it's, it's oak. It's like a white oak. And I was, mm -hmm. I was, got, I did get very lucky because when I sanded it and put finish on it, it looked beautiful. It has like a really nice, yeah. like, I don't know what you call it, like radial striations or something and i think that comes from like being courtesan if i remember correctly um but it, it really does look pretty nice i have to say yeah the joinery uh, you know you've said a number of times as we've been talking so far that you're not a talented woodworker or you're not a fine woodworker let me tell you what that toolbox i mean you really are it, because the tools that you're working with are not you know, the high end, super accurate on their own. I mean, you really had to, you really had to work and make that project look and be as functional as it, as it is. Um, so I particularly liked watching the different jigs that you used. Um, Cause like, even when you glued up the side boards, 
you know, to kind of clamp everything together. Can you kind of talk through what you use to kind of get your side pieces working? Yes. I made like a wedge jig. Uh, that, yes. yes, to glue the panels up. That was actually a Jimmy Dresta trick that I stole. I saw yeah. him do that, um, I don't even know, years ago. And it works amazingly. You just need like a, a flat surface, a uh, piece of plywood. And you take a piece, uh, two pieces that are angled to each other and you just tap them in and it wedges them together and it works really, really well. Yeah, that's, that's a great trick. When I saw you doing that, I was like, what in the, I don't understand what these crazy radial wedges are going to be on a flat-sided toolbox. But, and then it made sense. Yeah, it's a slick trick. He has, he's got the slickest tricks out there. Yeah, I definitely agree there. And then on, did you think about different kinds of um, joinery? Because you went with the finger, the finger joints. Mm-hmm. Was there, had you thought through other options or was that kind of always what you wanted to do with this one? Uh, I definitely briefly flirted with the idea of dovetails, um, but <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I just don't, I, I haven't all the discipline to practice. And one day I will, one day I'll practice dovetails and try to do some nice ones, but yeah, it just would have been a nightmare to do. So I figured that those were a little bit easier. And also since I was rounding over the sides, um, they worked pretty well with that. Yeah. I, uh, I made a box once and I did do dovetails, but I kind of cheated because I bought a pre already done jig. So, I mean, I really, your, your hand approach is definitely more detailed than, um, than mine with the dovetails. So I can definitely appreciate what you did there. Well, those jigs are definitely um, tempting. I might, I might have to get one of those one day. <laughs> so you, uh, well, I'll call it abusing a one, two, three block. And, uh, which was pretty cool. Can you talk about what you, what you, how, what you did with it and how you used it? Okay. Yeah, so yeah. what you did was you made it into a, uh, a marking, uh, yeah. Oh yeah. So yeah, uh, I, I guess like machinists probably cringe when they see us other makers using one, two, three box in, in the ways <laughs> we do. And I, I guess um, Adam Savage is probably to blame for that because he's like the guy who popularized them, those, but um, they're just like a, a really good flat square piece of material. And so I kind of used it as like a gauge, you know, my, my bench is relatively flat. And so I just held a pencil on it and used that to um, gauge the lid all the way around before I cut it, which was a scary part of the process was definitely mm-hmm. cutting off that lid because, you know, you have like a week or two of work into that box and you could really easily screw it up, cutting it off by hand. Whenever you were uh, doing the felt, um, had you ever tried to do like flocking? I have not, oh, but no. that's, I was kind of curious of, or if felt was, was your, was your, was your goal project, you know, for the lining? Yeah. I had thought about flocking, um, but I kind of want something a little bit more substantial in terms of mm. the padding. Cause again, it was originally going to be an instrument case. And then even just for the tools I was going to put in, it was more, more delicate tools, I guess. And just to keep it nice. And that was actually like, I was worried about doing that process. I thought it'd be really hard to cut everything to size and fit everything perfectly. And I just, it just worked. It was pretty easy. Like a surprising, you can hide your crimes pretty well with felt. Like if the corners, there's a couple of, of like tricks Like you can first, you can like color the corners with a colored pencil so it won't just be bare wood. Yeah. So I did that. And then you cut the pieces or use a template or whatever to get your sizes right. Uh, glue the pieces down. And then the little gaps, you can just take a little piece of felt, like bundle them up in your hand and like tuck them into the corners and it works perfectly. And I guess that's how people like make stuff out of felt. But yeah. I love the red. And, you know, another red piece you did was the uh, aluminum tray at the top. And I just wanted to say you were, had me dying when you made the different bending jigs 
and you made a second one and it was Mark II. And I was like, look at Tony Stark over here and his uh, aluminum build, bending jigs. Tell us about that process. Yeah, my, uh, broke, my broke man's brake broke. So I'll say that five times fast. <laughs> um, yeah, so that, the tray took a long time to do. Because the first time I tried, I made this, this break, quote unquote, out of um, like MDF and whatever and a piece of aluminum for the handle. And it just snapped like the first time I went to, to bend the aluminum to, to make this metal, metal tray. Uh, and then I was kind of, kind of fed up for a while. And eventually I went, revisited it and remade it out of like two by fours. And it was a little bit more sturdy. Um, and then I like uh, bent all the sides and it took a few tries to get like crisp enough edges. Like they're not perfect. They're, they're pretty rounded, but crisp enough. And then also the overlays on the corners before I can join them properly. And it was, it was a bit of a process. It took a few tries. There's definitely a, like, I don't know. I think I threw them out, but there's some failed attempts lying around somewhere. And then I uh, brazed the corners. And then I originally had tried to make like a custom handle out of like brazing pieces of aluminum. I don't think it ended up in the video and that just failed completely. So I just took like a regular drawer pull and um, pop riveted that to the top. And then I, reg I actually went through a bunch of different spray cans of paint until I found one that matched the um, felt pretty well. The color's dead on. It looks great. It's yeah, got a very it's... retro vibe to the color. When you went to paint your logo on the inside of the felt, what, what kind of paint did you use for, for actually painting right on the felt? Um, I looked up a fabric paint and it's just like a cheap spray can that, that you people use for like making like, you know, custom t-shirts, like taking like, you know, white t-shirts and spray painting on them or whatever. And it's supposed to be pretty um, resilient on fabric and it, yeah, it worked pretty well. And also the, the beauty of with the felt is I just had like a hand cut out stencil that I cut out with like an exacto knife or whatever. So it doesn't work too perfectly. So you get a lot of leakage with the felt. You can kind of pick out a little bit of the felt to mm. clean it up on the around the edges. So that worked out pretty well. That was another scary moment where it's like, I could ruin <laughs> this, this project again. There was a, a lot of points of that project where I could have ruined it and I mostly didn't. So it turned out good. Yeah. If I could derail the toolbox conversation for a second, one of the, fun things in your videos is watching the t-shirt changes throughout and it just reinforces how much effort and, and care you put into the process. Like nothing's rushed. Everything is done until you're satisfied and you enjoy the process of it. So hearing that you've got the paint and you've got the stencils, how many Watson t-shirts are out there floating around? There are currently no Watson t-shirts, um, but maybe in the future we'll, we'll see, you know, I have definitely thought about that idea, uh, but yeah, not, not currently. I'll take one. What finish? Oh yeah. What finish did you use on the box? Cause it really did pop when you put the finish on it. So I'm a fan of easy finishes. Uh, so it was just like the regular shellac that you can get at any hardware store and that stuff dries so quickly yep. and it's very forgiving. You can sand it between coats and probably like, I don't know, three or four coats. Of just regular shellac straight out of the tin and then uh, paste wax, which I put on literally everything after that. So just, yeah, paste wax and shellac. So Kelsey, one thing that's fun about your videos is they have a nice uh, cut and edit to them. You know, you don't have to watch a laboring of you sanding or planing, you know, you, you have a real good feel for how to jump around and always some pretty good music in it. Do you have any background in video editing? Where's that come from? Um, I don't have any background in video editing, but I do watch a lot of YouTube and I've watched <laughs> a 
a lot of different makers. There's some obvious influences in there. And obviously Laura Kampf is probably like the biggest in terms of like the actual video style. Um, but I try not, I try to de develop my own style, but you know, when you're starting out, you're kind of ripping off other people, but you know, you try to develop your own style over time. And yeah, I just try to keep it like how I would want to watch it. You know, I don't want, I don't want to watch someone sand for too long because I don't like sanding for too long. Yeah. And, you know, just try to get a flow to it, but also have a story, you know, it has to be the beginning and an end, you know, have an arc to it. Yeah. When I watch your videos, I'm just thinking like, cause I'm thinking that like, if I was filming and I was like, this guy has moved this camera 75 times for this shot. It's like, it really is like <laughs> a, a, a badge of honor for you. Cause it, uh, it's so much work to do that. And, but it really does make the video look good. It's so funny you say that. Cause I'll watch other people and I'd be like, I don't have time to move it that many times. Some people go crazy <laughs> with the way they get the shots. And it's like, you know, also, also the problem is like you have, when you're doing something that's transformative on camera, like you're turning one a piece into something else, you only have one, right. take. you know, I can't undo it. So there's so many times where it's just like out of focus or I, I don't have the best angle or my hands in the way. And that's it. Like you just have to work with it. Yeah. What you got. So I try to get different angles and different, you know, you know, prettier shots, but you know, you get what you get when you go back to edit it and you have to try to piece it together <laughs> into something kind of makes sense. We can tell that there's certain makers um, that, that you like to follow because it's, there was quite a few like uh, little tricks um, you know, as far as the glue and the sawdust trick and the, you know, those sandpaper on the board to smooth the whole thing out together. And then, like you mentioned, the Jimmy Duresta clamping um, technique, those were, I think what I appreciated the most about this video in particular is because I think it would be an ideal video to show a woodworking beginner class because you really did cover basic tools being used to make a way, way beyond basic project. You know, I mean, it just had that look, it had function, it really covered the bases, um, you know, all around. So I really, I think, uh, I think you really, you know, knocked it out of the park, you know, right out the gate, you know. Well, I really, I really appreciate that. And my goal for the video videos on my channel is kind of to show like, what you can learn on YouTube because I've, I'm not trained in any way. I'm just like, you know, a person with some tools and I've everything, I, all those tricks, all the processes I've learned on the platform. So it's kind of like trying to show like, you know, the next generation almost of like, you know, there's the original groups of people on, on who have shared all their knowledge. And now you can go out and do that yourself. And this is the results of what you can get just from this platform and, and from the maker community. Yeah, I think that's great because so many kids don't have that influence in their life. There, there were so many, the last generation went to college and went to, they didn't go to trade schools and, and things like that. So there's a gap there where a lot of parents didn't have the thing where they were, could teach their kids. And I think YouTube has started filling that gap. So it's, it's yeah. so ideal when guys share their tricks, share your knowledge. And it's, um, it, it's, it's great that you're doing that and, and, and trying to pass it on to the next generation. So I noticed that I'm glad you brought it up earlier. I noticed the toolbox you've had it for a long time and the video just came out and I'm like, film this and sat on that footage. I sat on it for so long. 
Well, <laughs> I, I was afraid to put myself out there, to be honest. You know, yeah. just you like, know what you find though? Um, there's always going to be idiots, but the support is, is much greater. I mean, so many people come out in a positive fashion that, you know, those curmudgeons that have comments or the way, you know, you could do it better. You just have to push those aside because yeah, you've got absolutely. 15 waiting to give you positive comment right behind right. them. Absolutely. From this point forward, anytime I, cause I get comments all the time where it's like, if I had $20,000 in machining tools, I, I'm just going to be like, here's, here's Kelsey's channel, go to his channel <laughs> and then <laughs> see if you could do something, you know, like it's, it's, it's great. It's a great, uh, humbling thing. Cause I'm like, he's doing great stuff and I have no excuse to not turn out great stuff. <laughs> so you put the pressure on me a little bit. Well, yeah, it's been really gratifying. Um, I've been, I've been really lucky with the response. Like that was my first video. And then a couple of months after I posted it, it just randomly got picked up and did, did relatively well. And you get like, you get the comments that are negative or whatever. And you just like, it doesn't bother you once you, once you out there and it's out, it doesn't bother you anymore. Like I was so afraid of this thing. And but now I think back, it's like, what was I worried about? And like some of the, some of the, the, the negative comments are like the funniest ones. Like I got one where this guy's like, you, you're telling me there's a pallet made out of people make pallets out of a hardwood and they just throw it out. Like it's garbage. I went around to all my pallet air, you know, distributors in the area. And they said, you're going to be crazy to make a pallet out of hardwood. And I'm like, dude, it's like a regional thing. Like where I live, they're all made out of, oak where you live you know they're plastic and pine i don't know what to tell you but he's like as if i was like faking it <laughs> it was really funny yeah i found that uh, so many pallets around here if you go to like the uh, um big appliance stores behind them it tends to be pretty exotic uh hardwoods because it's all you know things that are made in overseas and they're just any wood is good wood to make a pallet out of to them so I was, I was right. getting all kinds of mahogany and all kinds of stuff out of, uh, oh, that's the dream. Yeah. Check, check the appliance stores. That's where it's at. Yeah. The, the imports. Yeah. Now we'll do a little PSA that not all pallet wood is safe for woodworking or, or burning, whatever you can use it for. You gotta, you gotta check. They're usually stamped because some of them are treated. So you gotta be a little careful with that, but yeah, just see what you see. You, see what don't you eat off the top of your toolbox after you make it. No, <laughs> this one was fine. It was just, it was a CJ, but yeah, I wouldn't eat it and definitely wear a dusk mask, you know? This is a, a topic that we like to ask every guest. Um, and it's, if you could only choose three tools to take on your workshop, what would they be? I absolutely love this question and I love this ongoing uh, conversation, but I think there are like different ways, different philosophies, obviously of how you can look at it. Like the right answer is a tape measure you know a utility knife and a pencil but like assuming you have those things then you get into like well is it just for life or is it for making in a workshop and if it's like just for life you know like moving like christy said like you're going going through that process like it's a skill saw you know a drill and like a hammer but like for me i think for my personal workshop i think i'd have to go with a table saw uh angle grinder and a cordless drill probably but then you get into, like, if I really wanted to start from scratch, like, um, it's just me. It's like the episode of, like, the Twilight Zone when you're just, like, alone in the world. It's just like that. Like, I want, like, an anvil, a forge, and a hammer because I can just make everything else I need eventually. That's good. I thought for sure you are going to say five. Like we broke him. Because 
Yeah, yeah God, he used ton of files. Yeah. That's true. That is like my signature tool because it's like you can make up for a lot of mistakes or whatever. And that's true. Good bastard file. Yeah. When I was watching your video, I'm like, this guy really loves his files, man. Like, <laughs> it's 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 kind of like a crutch, honestly, because it's just like I have to get in here and fix this mistake because I didn't cut to the line properly, or I have to just like fine tune it, and that's what I have is the file. So yeah, yeah. I might like. I'm not skilled enough with any other tool to get that precision. So just sneak up on whatever you're doing. Yeah. With file. Or, or you are skilled enough to know to sneak up on it with a file. Like that's, that's a good, that's yeah. Positive. yeah. Exactly. I mean, don't I like that. Don't screw it up. Come up to the edge and finish it. Correct. So I'm trying to develop some more precision. Like I finally got marking fluid recently and that's been a, a dream um, to, to, you know, to try to work to more precise uh lines and and all that i saw you use the marking fluid when you were cutting out the circle for the ukulele for the mm-hmm. center of the ukulele and you put the compass and you scored that line and in my experience i was like how how cute and ambitious that that whole saw bit's not going to go and just oh, take God. off <laughs> uh, that was a yeah it was a clenching moment where you're, i'm going to screw this up um yeah i hate hole saws but for the tools i have that's like the the best way to make a circle or make a round plug or whatever. So I use, I use them a lot, but they're, they're terrible and they'll destroy whatever you're working with and maybe break your wrists. <laughs> well, thanks a lot for joining us tonight, Kelsey. Um, where can everybody find you? Uh, so I'm Kelsey Watson on YouTube and KWatts42, I believe on Instagram. Uh, yeah. And thank you so much for having me guys. It's, it's been a, a, an honor to be on a podcast about making. It's really it means a lot. Cool. You deserve it, man. You're awesome. Thank you. Hey, now that was a great conversation with Kelsey. I really, uh, really appreciate his projects, but still, it floors me the quality of his first YouTube video. So I have to, I have to bring it up. What, what did you guys do for your first YouTube video, um, Austin? What did you have? So my first one I made was a uh, a stainless steel screwdriver with a micarta handle. And uh, my video quality was nowhere near his first video quality. That's for sure. I watch it now and kind of cringe, but you, you got to jump in at some point. Right. And the only way you get better is by getting in. That's the, the hard dance. You know, and he talked about, you know, we brought up, he had a toolbox that he had the video footage from years ago before he turned it into a YouTube video. And it's funny how we just get in our own brains and don't, won't move forward or won't put out the next video. Um, you know, I've struggled with some YouTube videos and not with negative comments or I've, I get followers and I'm not updating anything, but it's like every vi- one of my videos, I had a catastrophic moment in and I, it, it's making me not want to repeat that except for my first one. My first one was my most easy to do and the least amount of errors, errors. And it was the, because we make in lightness challenge light. Um, and it was so crazy that they did that. And I had this toolbox for four years, probably just sitting here with nothing going on. And I made that light with the intent of my next video, which was the sync project or whatever. But yeah, my first video was a light video and I struggled with camera placement, doing one thing for too long. You know, they're watching me use a drill for three minutes. Um, and I just can't get over how smooth his transitions and his cinematography were for such few videos. Christy, do you remember your first video? Um, yeah, my first video was about a year ago or a little over a year ago. And COVID 
gave me the flexibility um, to have more time to be making projects. And then our Makers on Zoom having coffee group, I really got the encouragement to actually um, take up putting a video out there because I was, you know, really apprehensive as well, just like Kelsey was. But um, my first one was uh, a Barnwood keepsake box for my niece. Um, her her uh, first communion was coming up. So my sister was wanting um, me to build her a box so she can keep, you know, different, um, different mementos in. And it uh, definitely had the, the fewest views of any of my videos. But I really, I really liked building that um, project. And I just felt good about putting, um, I really felt good about doing something that was way out of my comfort zone because I hadn't edited any video before. There too, I had to have my daughter kind of show me how to do that on, on iMovie on my phone. I mean, almost all of my, actually all of my videos that I have up there were edited on my phone. And um, I've got, you know, three or four in recorded, but I've just haven't had time with everything else that's going on to actually edit them and put them together. But, um, but that kind of all goes into why I even post YouTube videos is because that box I made for my niece. So I wanted her to be able to see Um, what I made and how I made it. And then, you know, the other projects, most all the other projects have been for other people. So, and nieces and nephews or family. So that's why I put them out there so they can watch them. And at least when they get older, they can understand a little more, you know, what Aunt Christy did or why she did and, and how she did. And I kind of want to inspire them to, to think that it's okay to (laughs) go out of your comfort zone and, and make something. Well, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely nerve wracking to take the first leap, but I think once you kind of do it, it's then it's not really a big deal anymore. And you know, once you get a certain number of bad comments, what's what's one more? So (laughs) what's what's one more? Put it on put it on the list. And I I have not been as nervy as Kelsey has. I really admire him for putting his I wouldn't necessarily say errors, but his rough drafts um, of different things. You know, he's done, he did something that didn't quite work out. So then he did something a second time or a third time. And he shows that in his videos. And I, I have not been, um, I've not been that forthcoming <laughs> maybe because I think it'll end up being a 30 minute video. So I always struggle with that. It's like, do, do I show, cause in every project you, you at least have like one little flub or, or you, you accidentally scratch something with a piece of sandpaper and it's like, do you leave that in or do you, you know, and, and I think what the answer to that is, is like, is it part of the story or is it just an accidental flub that doesn't really change the, the, the storyline, you know? And like, so with his, that's a evolution of the story. Mm-hmm with me slipping with the file and scratching a piece of brass, like I just did on my mallet, that cost me four hours of sanding and polishing. <laughs> that doesn't need to be in the video. So, you know, what do you, what do you guys think? So y'all heard that right before you vote for his mallet, it's got a big scratch on it that he's got on the backside. He's not taking a picture of the scratch. Go, <laughs> it's there. Um, no, you know, it's funny, the insecurities and stuff, you know, the ones I struggle with are how fat do I look in this shot? And then um, electrical, because I'm extremely comfortable doing my own electric work, extremely comfortable. I feel confident in everything I've done. I've done a ton of different stuff. It doesn't bother me at all. 
But that's the one comment. It's like, I don't need, I don't need somebody second guessing or judging what I'm doing. So like that light video, I did not show me wiring the light because I didn't need somebody judging me. And I took my time to make a junction box to make sure that the wires were concealed. But you know, that was the longest part of the process was how do I mount this toolbox and protect the wires? And so, you know, I made a junction box inside the mounting hardware, but I'm like, there's no way I can put this on, on film. And then, right. you know, just instead of putting the camera at an angle from the side, of course, I come straight from the back and I look like the penguin from the Batman Returns movie. Uh, and I, I'm just like, but you got to put it out there, you know, footage is footage. Show yeah. them you're a real person who likes ribs. The uh, I think it's those uh, Texas tacos that's be. doing the trick, but the uh, the Grant Alexander always chastises me for he's like you're you're always too close, like back out, show show, and I'm like, dude, I don't want everybody to see my gut on freaking film, you know, like let me slim out and then I'll start backing it out and wearing the spandex. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a review and subscribe. If you want to reach out to us or you know a maker with a fantastic project that deserves a deep dive, send us a message on Instagram at Making Our Way Podcast. You can find all of our latest individual content on Instagram and YouTube. I'm at Twisted Twine Woodworking. Austin is at High Caliber Craftsman. And Dean is at Dean underscore DePlantis. Have a great day. Sorry, I just freaking lost what I was going with. What were you, what were you talking about right before that? This was after that. That's okay. Damn, I have no clue. So I've been in the freaking 95 degree sun all day baking.